0: penicillin mold that was given to the university by Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin and and discovered the medical uses of penicillin, is absolutely fascinating because it looks like a ridiculous paperweight, like a really kind of 1950s paperweight. But when you look into it, it feels like you could fall into it. first paid job, aside from like a paper route, was a dishwasher at a local greasy spoon kind of breakfast restaurant. I had some really bad jobs. (laughs) Sitting up in what it was a 15th century archbishop's chapel that had been converted to a library in the 19th century, you know, with like galleries and, you know, really bad lighting and really cold, but fantastic. engaging audiences with our collections to to get new projects off the ground or to encourage instructors to talk to our curatorial teams, to bring their classes into our spaces, to use our collections and to kind of champion things, um, all things cultural heritage uh, to the university.
1: In this episode, we're letting you listen again to the Centre for Research Collections Meet the Series. We meet in the virtual world and introduce you to someone involved in collections, archives and the heritage sector. At the end of 2021, voice volunteer Lily Mellon sat down in conversation with Daryl Green, the Head of Special Collections at the Centre for Research Collections. We talked about Daryl's early jobs and educational background, his move from America to St Andrews, and the CRC exhibitions, intern opportunities, and reading room access available despite the recent COVID-19 restrictions. So Daryl has been warned of the types of topics that come up but otherwise this is coming fresh to us all. So yeah without further ado let's get into it. Hello Daryl, thank you for doing this today. How are you doing?
0: I'm okay Lily, thanks. How are you?
1: Yeah not bad, not bad. All right well so before we do get into kind of job or jobs within the research collections I was wondering where did you grow up?
0: I grew up. So I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which is kind of right in the middle of the states. And I grew up in a place called Canton, Ohio, which is about 40, 50 miles south of Cleveland, Ohio. So born and bred kind of uh, midwesterner. So I'm Mm. I'm far from home.
1: Yes, you are. You're across the pond. Can you remember the first job that you ever had?
0: (laughs) I had some really bad jobs. (laughs) I had... uh, I think my, my first uh, first paid job aside from like a paper route was a dishwasher at a local greasy spoon kind of breakfast restaurant. That was yes. horrible. Uh, probably my most memorable early job was working for local parks authorities kind of cutting trees and busting beaver, beaver dams and stuff, uh, those stories there. My first kind of library job. Mm. Uh, culture heritage jobs at university um, at my, during my undergraduate at Kent, where I did work for uh, a couple of uh, professors who needed to get uh, research done, and were kind of employing students to do research. That was my kind of first introduction into diving deep into to libraries and and doing work in special collections. But yeah, I've had I had I've had a, a whole raft of
1: really yeah jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. Yeah, um, got to start somewhere with the kp'ing and everything like that. That was actually kind of going to be my next question in terms of location where you chose to study and things like that.
0: Yeah, so my undergraduate was close to home so uh, I I started my undergraduate at Ohio State University which is in Columbus and then transferred to Kent State University which is a smaller kind of liberal arts university uh, two years in so I graduated from Kent State University so again you know 40-50 miles from where I grew up and really kind of a lovely campus kind of American experience. But it was my supervisor, my kind of undergraduate supervisor at Kent, who really pushed me to consider going abroad for uh, a year of graduate study. So I was still kind of uh, humming and hawing as to whether or not I would pursue an academic career or what I wanted to do. And at the time, although it's not the case anymore, you could, you, you still can do a UK Masters in one year. But it was actually cheaper to do a UK master's in one year, even with the exchange rate and traveling and living abroad, versus uh, a master's in the States, which is usually a two-year affair. So looked around a couple different places in the UK uh, and ended up at uh, York uh, University of York uh, for my master's degree.
1: Nice, a lot of history there. Yeah,
0: a lot of of great libraries, and it's kind of uh, it was a master's in medieval studies, so it was kind of doing a a degree that a kind of an all rounded degree in in things medieval in a medieval town in England. And to you know, a Midwestern boy, that was eye opening.
1: Mm, Fantastic. I was thinking before we kind of get into the into your role at the CRC, would you be able to kind of give us a little bit more of an idea of how you got there? Was this the sort of job that you were aiming for or something that kind of came together along the way? Did it start medieval and, and get bigger?
0: Uh, I mean, my job, my job at the the CRC, my current job, is is really kind of combination of of a, a couple of different career moves. And as you kind of grow and progress through through the career, you kind of get a better idea and understanding where where you're happy or where you might be happy and where you where you fit. I started off very much working in a medieval and old library, So uh, during my postgraduate degree at York, I picked up some part time work at York Minster Library, which is, was It was part time work throughout the summer of my dissertation write up periods. Sitting up in what it was a 15th century archbishop's chapel that had been converted to a library in the 19th century, you know, with like galleries and you know really bad lighting and really cold, but fantastic. And that time was really uh, critical for my career development because at that point, you know, I really kind of hit home that working in a library, especially with special collections, I could keep one foot in the kind of academic world, which I I really love being part of, but also at five o'clock, you know, clock out and go home and have my own life and do my own thing, which I'd seen a lot of my academic friends, even in their early careers, really struggle with work-life balance. That's not to say that that's not always the case with the the library profession, but it certainly was was attractive. So York Mr. Library, from there... I went back to the states to do my postgraduate qualification in library science which is kind of standard gateway degree for most most things then came back to the uk uh, where i took a job as a rare book cataloger at university of st andrews um, which went from temporary to permanent uh, and then worked as rare books librarian there for a while until i went down to oxford's in 2016 uh, to take up librarianship at Magdalen college oxford's and eventually fellow librarianship but the, the kind of drive the drive to, to come to the CRC, to come to Edinburgh, was both career-based in terms of kind of career progression and career movement, because uh, I, I love working with the collections, but I also love working with the people and kind of building and creating teams and projects and services around heritage collections. It's something I really got the feel for in Oxford. But also, we really loved Scotland. Um, we'd lived in Scotland, uh, me and my wife had lived in Scotland for six and a half, seven years when I was working at St. Andrews. Uh, the quality of life, the the people, the community that we had found was was just fantastic, and so it was a kind of combined opportunity of career progression, but also coming back to a place that we loved and uh, both expats, both kind of felt at home at, um, it was kind of the perfect, perfect storm.
1: Nice, lovely. Yeah, I think it's always nice, um, especially kind of current students to hear that it, there's not a, a clear path, there's jumping about. Maybe it, it's the job you're doing, maybe it's the actual location that's jumping about a little bit, but you kind of find your place and, and where you end up going. And there's a lot to be said for some work-life balance of sitting in between the two things and finding what's for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think uh, the, the, the the place you know where you're happy is as much to do with your work as it, outside of work. Um, and you know for us our happy place was was Scotland, our happy place is Scotland and you know you've got a, there are factors outside of work that make decisions about work as well.
1: Yeah oh St Andrews is so beautiful, the beach is there. Yeah okay so you're not only the deputy head of CRC but the other title is the head of special collections so for the audience to kind of get a quick idea if they don't already what sort of things would you find in the collections? What what's kind of sits under your care?
0: Yeah, sure, so Special Collections at Edinburgh is uh, three or four core collections as well as a couple of core services. So uh, you have the Early Printed and Rare Book Collection, which is huge. It's uh, well over 500,000 items in the collection. Uh, you have the University's Archives, so that's the Administrative Archive as well as um, Uh, you know, the the individual schools and things, and that's from 1580, before the foundation of the university to present day, uh, both physical and digital. As well as the personal papers and manuscripts by manuscripts that could be anything from uh, medieval, both Western medieval as well as uh, non Western medieval, uh, right the way through current uh, modern literary manuscripts and things. We have the uh, Lothian Health Service Archive, which is a separate archive and a separate service. That's the the archive of NHS Lothian, which is huge and super important and a really interesting setting too, to have a, a health service archive based within a university. It really, uh, it does different things for the archive. Uh, and then I have um, the user services team or the reading room team, which is the team that is the, uh, the front facing uh, team uh, of the CRC who you will see at the front desk and in the reading rooms, but also who are fielding the inquiries that come in, uh, the, the, the huge amount of inquiries that come in uh, through email and, and other channels, um, which range anywhere from can I have a picture of this to very detailed in depth requests about um, alumni and um, mm. uh, or you know research requests as well. So all all that falls within the the, the umbrella of Special Collections, and it's really the CRC is is kind of uh, two main teams, Special Collections and Museums. Mm -hmm. Uh, So head of museums, my colleague uh, Jackie McBeath, uh, under her umbrella, you've got the art collection and uh, arts and objects collection, the musical instrument collection, St. Cecilia's Hall and conservation as well.
1: Very nice, very nice. If we were to do uh, a little day in the life of the sort of work that you are undertaking, what are you talking? Are you behind the scenes? Are you customer facing, so to speak? Um, I'm imagining, you know, maybe the odd email, the odd meeting between groups, people, just on occasion.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of what I do is this: <laughs> a lot of, a lot of meetings, a lot of, a lot of uh, talking, and a lot of, a lot of email and correspondence. I think, you know, for, for my role, part of it is making sure that the teams have what they need to do what they need to do. Part of it is pushing forward strategic partnerships and relationships. So whether that's relationships with academics or external partners, or whatever. And some of it is that kind of glue in between. So, I mean, for me, it's I spend a lot of my time you know uh, in these kind of meetings where you're discussing high level strategy or uh, arguing about budgets or you know whatever but a lot of it is also you know uh, engaging audiences with our collections to to get new projects off the ground or to encourage instructors to talk to our curatorial teams to bring their classes into to to our spaces to use our collections and to kind of champion things all things cultural heritage uh, to the university The other side of it too, and and I think this is really important for this kind of conversation, is the collections. Although most of my time is not spent working with collections or indeed responding to individuals' questions about collections, I do have collections expertise, uh, or I should say I have uh, expertise in some areas of our collections. But I don't know our collections very well, partly because I've only been here for 18 months, and also because those 18 months have been problematic in terms of getting into the building, mm. which we talked about. Um, so, you know, th- there is a, a certain element of kind of history of photography, which is in my background, but also early printing, kind of uh, 15th and early 16th century printing, which is my real kind of uh, academic backgrounds, which I, I do occasionally weigh in on. But for the most part, it is a, a hell of a lot of email, and Teams chat, but also lots of lots of meetings.
1: Nice, nice. Oh, well, I think you kind of started touching it a little bit there because um, I'm going to ask about the favorite thing in the collections. But your Twitter would suggest old books. I'm more than happy to keep this question open. Do you have a favorite element of working at the CRC or something that kind of stands out in the in the collections?
0: I mean, I can take both of those really quickly. Favorite element of working the CRC is is the people. Um, I mean. Every cultural heritage job that I've worked at, the collections are always great. I mean, the, you, you never work with crap collections. <laughs> <laughs> by by definition, they're, they're pretty fantastic to start off with. It's the people that really make the difference mm-hmm. and any cultural heritage organization. Um, I've, I've found a lot of enthusiastic people. The CRC has this kind of condensed enthusiasm and kind of condensed group of individuals who are really passionate about their job, which is, is really fantastic. Uh, in terms of collection items, I mean, for me, Yes, I like old books. Uh, I, 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 When I need to de-stress, uh, I often go down into the stacks and just walk the, the book stacks. But to be honest with you, I'm learning a lot about new areas of, of collections that I haven't particularly worked with in my p- past jobs. So in my past jobs, I've never had art collections you know, that have been within purview, within shots, or object collections. Uh, if I had to pick one or two, can I pick two? Uh, one is uh, a book. Uh, I constantly change my favorite book, but I'm, I'm currently transfixed by the Macbeth um, medical manuscripts. So there's a, a medical manuscript which is purportedly 16th century, I think it's earlier, which is in Gaelic, Scots Gaelic, in a contemporary binding, which uh, you can find on the, the, the treasures, or the iconics section of the collections website. Ah, uh, but I think it's still it still has a lot of secrets to to give. I think it's 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 understudied and hasn't really been put under the noses of the right people. So I love that book because it's, it's got a lot of uh, enigmatic things to it. Collection items. Uh, my first day that I was in the building, I was uh, given a, a kind of whistle stop tour some highlights. and uh, the penicillin mold that was given to the university by Alexander Fleming who um, it, uh, discovered penicillin and, and discovered the medical uses of penicillin is absolutely fascinating because it, it, it looks like a ridiculous paperweight like a really kind of 1950s paperweight but when you look into it like uh, you you could literally like fall it feels like you could fall into it just because of of how complex and intricate it is but also kind of you know, the way that the dome is shaped and it's just one of those items that is abstract you know its own beauty is abstract and really interesting, but also its cultural significance and importance is, you know, it's it's saved millions of, of lives. So it has that kind of deep resonance that, that shakes you when you walk away. It's, it's a great item.
1: Mm. Oh, such nice choices there. Yeah, I like I like both. Of, yeah. And I think that there's a lot to be said for kind of actually getting into the collections. You're saying, you know, the, the amount of time of your job that has been spent where we are restricted, we are maybe not on site all the time. Uh, who knows perhaps there's more hiding around the corner that has yes. in the stacks that has not been got to yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well on that topic we ha- we have all been experiencing a lot of remote working um, is are people able to get into the building again when it comes to the sixth floor?
0: Oh yeah yeah so uh, we were the first university special collections to reopen post first lockdown so we were open in July, uh, limited, so we could only have six or seven people in the reading room at a time, but that meant that we had a certain number of staff and a certain number of, of readers that could come in. And we remained open right up until the second lockdown, uh, the second Scottish lockdown, from January until end of Feb, beginning of March, whenever it was, and then we've been open ever since. Publicly, so the reading room, we now have 11 reader seats, which is still about half, um, slightly less than half capacity at, at normal, but it's um, it's pretty good and we've extended the opening hours of the reading room as well so they're they're almost almost back to to normal. The only difference to to how things were uh, before plague times was that readers need to book in in advance, and book in collections in advance. Previously, you could just roll up to the sixth floor and ask to see something, and things would get delivered at certain times. So yeah, uh, the buildings are open, Uh, people are back in. We've uh, had a a huge number of seminars uh, up in the CRC, student seminars, uh, teaching seminars, in the last three weeks, which has been really fantastic to see. There's a kind of new buzz about the sixth floor, which I I never got to experience, because I started my job two weeks before lockdown. But also, there's more staff coming back into offices doing things as well.
1: Mm. Nice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, how kind of in terms of the collections, how has the CRC been coping, adapting, changing uh, due to the pandemic? I was just kind of wondering what it meant for the collections and the sources in more of the long term, perhaps?
0: Yeah, uh, so uh, like a a lot of other things, the, the pandemic and the remote working has really pushed quite strongly a move to more flexible and digital working so both flexible in terms of you know uh, people can come in for certain days to do things but they don't necessarily be into the office all the time Uh, but also implementing new digital technologies you know whether that's being much more lax about uh, us taking quick snaps of things to answer research inquiries and we've got a whole bank of ipads to do that now so people don't have to use their own phones and things. Uh, but also more high spec kits like visualizers that you would see in a dissection lab instead being uh, installed in our CRC teaching spaces so that we can deliver hybrid teaching or do one-to-one sessions with individuals to kind of work with material and show them you know what they need to see you know whether they are in Edinburgh or Glasgow or Buenos Aires you know we can do that as long as you've got an internet connection so we you know we really kind of pushed into that sphere both in terms of our teaching capabilities which will need to be flexible for quite some time you know no matter um, where things go but also in terms of reading room opportunities we're kind of experimenting with virtual reading room you know uh, readers being able to book appointments from wherever they're at to um, uh, join a, a teams or zoom call with a, a member of the user services staff or a curatorial staff to, to consult items in our collection live underneath a, um, a video camera, so it's it's opened our minds, and I think we're we're still in a quite a creative, fun space of figuring out you know how to use some of this new technology, which is great.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, it's perhaps brought a few questions forward um, or plans forward in terms of the virtual side of things. Just a a little bit more of an explanation of this virtual reading room service. That's on a Monday, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, officially appointments are to be scheduled on Mondays because we have actually shut down our reading room, uh, physical reading room service to allow for the the digital reading room to a virtual reading room to take place. Uh, But in all honesty, you know, if it's an individual consultation, um, we could probably pick up a, a virtual room appointment throughout the week, depending on capacity with staff.
1: Yeah. Nice, nice. And just can come in from anywhere. Was this something that was available before, or is this very mm-hmm. much
0: a? No, no. This is this is all brand new. This is, um, I mean, the the technology has in a way kind of always been there. I mean, ever since we've been able to do like Skype calls, right? But better, uh, better bandwidth, but also better um, cameras, and better quality. But also just realizing that it's it's OK, you know, to have a, a little kind of um, angle mounted camera and to put a book underneath that and to work through that book with somebody on the other side. One, it's it's quite an intimate experience, especially if you're a researcher and a curator. Uh, but two, you can get a lot done, which, you know, in in, you know, previous times you would have had to potentially, you know, book an international flight and pay for a hotel and, you know, all just to see one book and now you can do mm. it on the camera, so but it's all all new and it's I think that's what's fun is we're still in this kind of stage of experimenting and being creative about how we use tech.
1: Yeah it's fun I know well the user services is always so busy but there there must be an element of whatever project is going on a real interest in some of the research going on too. Yeah
0: I mean you know I think both as as a curator but also as user services that's where the that's where the real spark of the job is right I mean if you're working in cultural heritage, you know, our jobs are to be the kind of connective tissue between a collection and a reader or an object and a viewer. You know, that our job is to be that connective piece. And because you're that connective piece, it's always a two-way conversation. You know, you, you give up and, and inform the person who's looking at the thing about what you know about it or what you can divine about it as a, a, a professional, but also you then learn from them, you know, what they've taken away from that and what they've learned from it. So, you know, that that's really at the root of all of what we do within cultural heritage and, you know, whether that happens in person or digitally now, you know, it's it's the same process.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering, are there any upcoming projects that you are particularly excited by?
0: Yeah. uh, So, I mean, some of them are, are. Physical, some more digital, some our research. I mean, it, I'm, I'm really excited. So we, we have our first physical exhibition opening next week uh, for two years. So this is our first, uh, I won't say post-pandemic, but I'll say post-lockdowns um, physical exhibition to, to, to open. Really exciting. There's oh. also challenged, uh, challenged uh, um, a, a number of us to kind of think about what that whole process is like. So really excited about that, really excited to kind of see collections together in a physical space, talking to each other and also people engaging with a physical exhibition, which is um, um, a long time coming. I think uh, in that same space, but in the digital space, we have recently launched an online exhibitions platform. Which complements the work that we've already been doing on Google Arts and Culture and a few other spaces and the online exhibitions platform is really exciting because it's it gives us a, uh, a toolbox to tell stories from the collections. You know, digital space, which we didn't have before. Uh, The opportunities there are pretty limitless. And some of the elements of the digital exhibitions we're just starting to play around with. So one of the elements that that we're looking to play around with is how to move from, you know, so say you're reading through an online exhibition, you get to certain objects. What we want to do is to signal to people that if you're interested in this object, jump over to this other exhibition where something similar is. So it's actually moving from one exhibition to another through object connectivity. Really playing around with the digital world and treating digital exhibitions is completely different to physical exhibitions, which is how they should be. So that's really exciting. We've got some research projects on the go, including a couple of partnerships with the Wellcome Foundation, which are both kind of peer archive and research projects as well as um, web archiving and theoretical projects as well, which are really exciting. So yeah, yeah. a lot
1: going on. There is, it is. It's exciting. Uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying some of the digital stuff. While there wasn't, it wasn't possible to be in person. All the got Two Hundred and Fifty stuff was really pretty, and I have a a, a real bias for the William Hill things. I, it's fantastic that the digital stuff can really bring out a lot of the oral history because people can actually hear the voices. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I'm not really. I'm not really supposed to say what my my favorite exhibitions are, but in terms of the Google Arts and Culture exhibition, I thought that in turn, the combination of the oral histories and the images uh, of the um, the LHSA exhibition on the Royal Infirmary was really fantastic. It, you know, to the point of really being quite moving, in, in some of some of the instances where you've got you know combined of uh, uh, interview and an image so you know there's potential there for really kind of emotive experiences you wouldn't get in a in a gallery necessarily or because you're at home you can feel like you can be a little bit more emotive since nobody else is watching you which really speaks to me again i've only been in the post for 18 months you know once we're back and can have everybody on site just how exciting some of the work can be done and offered to volunteers and students so we have a, a very robust volunteer program Uh, And we do have a whole raft of student internships which get advertised throughout the year. So we've got an ongoing um, internship program currently with three different aspects of university history, which is kind of archives and student newspapers, which has six student interns, um, which are undergraduate and postgraduate interns and then we will we've got a number of, of paid internships that come up throughout the year I think last year by the end of last year we had um, over 50 internship opportunities um, hosted the CR student internship opportunities hosted the CRC which range anything from uh, you know cataloging both archival as well as read book to ECA students working on design for our online exhibitions to you know everything else in between conservation and all kinds of things so we have we have lots
1: of opportunities. Magic. So going into a different topic, would you say that there are any preconceptions surrounding your role?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yes, there, there are definite preconceptions, which I hope are, are slowly, slowly changing or deteriorating. This is, it's, it's an interesting space because with special collections, you're often kind of in the world of academia and in book history and those that work with archives, it's has largely been a kind of white male dominated uh, area for a long time and that has really changed or has started to really change in the last five to seven years. I think in cultural heritage, more broadly but sp- certainly within libraries and, and archives sector, the gender balance has always been quite strong uh, and often uh, more weighted to women than men. but in senior level roles, uh, if you look across the board, there still is an imbalance. So I think there are preconceptions around uh, gender and power that need to be um, addressed part you know some of those are, are real uh, preconceptions that are based on fact verifiable facts for a role like a senior leadership role, like I have. Some preconceptions around how much time you get to work with collections versus with people is you know, that's totally how you know how you design your your role and how you work within your role. And I think you know preconceptions around access to when I started in in this sector 12 years ago. Uh, there was still a lot of uh, senior leaders who were very closeted with accessing, you know, providing access to collections, you know, to to students, to members of the public, or even to postgraduate researchers. And that has changed, although there, there's still some of that attitude that needs to be rooted out. But, you know, the fact that we've got first year undergraduates, uh, uh, very soon we're going to have uh, local high schools coming in to, to, to come see collection items and things like that. You know, our collections are really here for everybody and therefore our services and our staff are here for everybody as well.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm thinking we could just keep talking forever, but I want to make sure that the audience get a bit of time as well to ask their questions. We're going to move on to the Sillier so quickfire round of questions uh, and then we will head to the Q&A. Okay, so I was wondering, could you recommend uh, a restaurant or a cafe in Edinburgh, perhaps a personal favourite or something like that? Oh, I don't know. Uh,
0: I don't live in Edinburgh. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, one
1: in the middle of nowhere, perhaps. They could yeah, walk to.
0: I one in the middle of nowhere. How's that? So, my favorite restaurant in, in Scotland, which is not a very posh restaurant, is the Moulin Inn, which is north of Pitlockery, which is a, a tiny little pub at the, the foot of a really beautiful walk. But they're they're a microbrewery and it's just a really a really fantastic Scottish pub. Um we always walk in, there's like three or four dogs and a roaring fire and and a really mm-hmm. good food both both um veggie and not And yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately I, I, I my go to place in Edinburgh is the oh sorry, the the mosque uh, kitchen. Um oh, yeah. which is great. Amazing and, food. and you get a you know, you get like three kilos of food when you <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Yeah, I I think one of my favourites is The Drovers. It sounds like a very similar The Drovers in, in terms of Roaring Fire and and dogs everywhere. Uh, What was the last book you read?
0: The last book I read, so I just finished a book by Sue Black, who's a professor of anatomy up in Dundee. And I'd be damned if I can remember what it's called. Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, it's always things. the way. Oh man, it's gonna it's gonna kill me if I don't tell you what it is. <laughs> can I just look it up really quick? Is that okay? Yeah, of
1: course, of course. Sorry.
0: I'm really sorry. This is. Mm. Gonna, um, I also just finished uh, Piranesi, um, which is uh, was okay. So, uh, Sue Black's book is called All That Remains: a Life and Death, which is kind of a autobiographical. Account of her work as an anatomist which was really really fantastic
1: nice nice have you ever had late finds on a library book
0: oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in fact uh, so yes as a student absolutely Um, I still have a library book from my last job which uh, they recently got in touch with, asking politely if I could return it because I, for, it got packed up in in the move and then the pandemic, so I I currently I currently have a book that is 18 months overdue, to a library in Oxford. So uh, I I hope they'll waive the fines, but I'll happily pay them if
1: they don't. <laughs> That's strong. That's a good a good answer. Do you have a a favorite? museum or gallery to attend? Uh, it, that really doesn't have to be kind of Edinburgh-based or Scotland-based, either. Mm.
0: I find myself, yeah, I find myself always going back to the um, to the Pitt Rivers Museum and Oxford's, in terms of just kind of museum experience, but also in terms of what modern curatorial teams are doing with collections that have a lot of problems it's really an interesting space and a space where a lot of intervention has taken place recently my favorite museum i think is probably the viking ship museum in, in oslo it's just really kind of impactful museum and the way that the kind of the, the artifacts are presented and where it is it was just really kind of fantastic
1: mm, nice choice nice choice i spent some time in stockholm so i always enjoyed going to the vessel ship there Oh, this this kind of connected to the the favorite restaurant or cafe. I was thinking in terms of the outdoor world. If you had a favorite walking path or hike, maybe a viewpoint.
0: Yeah. I, so I, I walk a, a lot as I live up in the hills in in Fife. Um, there's not many hills in Fife, but I live up in uh, not on the coast in Fife. Uh, the coastal path in, in East Fife uh, is always a, a go-to for us because we've got small boys and. and pulling them up hills is, is not very fun. <laughs> I think recently I'd, so I've done a little bit of walking in the Cairngorms this year and did a bit of wild camping and uh, Corey Fee was really great, uh, kind of really easy walk, but also just a really beautiful campsite.
1: Nice, yeah. nice. Amazing. Well, I think let's, that wraps up the quick fire round of, of silly questions and perhaps Laura, you will know better what's going on in terms of audience. Yeah, we've got a few really great questions here, actually. So Lily is asking, Daryl, what would you say was the most important part of your education stroke career that led you to the role you're in now? Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think probably the the, the most important part for me, I think this is for a lot of people in my career, is that first time you get you you encounter a special collections, or you encounter a rare book and archive item as part of your your degree, right? So I mean, I remember in my undergraduate when I went out to do research on behalf of a professor. In my undergraduate, we were never taken to to a special collection. Not that Kent State had anything, fan, you know, super fantastic, but um, but going into a couple of local archives to do some work was was really exciting. But part of my, my dissertation work, I actually got a little grant to go to the Library of Congress, to um, call up, of all things, some very rare microfilms, rare microfilms. But that whole experience of going to to Library of Congress and you know encountering specialized material and research environments, really just kind of set the tone of you know this is this is a really interesting place. This is really interesting work, and the people that are doing this work really love what they're doing. So I think, you know, it's that it's still that kind of tingly, you know, people in the room for the first time with, you know, a medieval manuscript or, you know, with an, um, an artist's book or something like that is is where it's at. Yeah, that's
1: yeah, a that's like, motivation, I suppose. Yeah. Well, no, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. OK, another question is, do you think being in a leadership role in collections and heritage inevitably leads to more distance between yourself and the objects you oversee?
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. It's the it's the thing that you always fear when you when you uh, move up the, the career ladder every step. So I started as a book cataloger, which meant that every day, eight hours a day, my fingers were in old books, doing stuff with old books. And that's really you know where you get your experience, where you learn things. But I, I love that. And I still love that. But yeah, as you move up the career ladder, you, you, you're always moving further and further away from collections. For me though, I do take a lot of joy of seeing other people get that same pleasure out of collections or being able to enable other people to to you know to, to do that same work. And I think that's really important as a senior leader is that you, you understand the, the, the kind of the, the professional pleasure it gives to, to see people working with those collections and to enable that to happen. So yeah. I, I don't work with collections nearly as much as what I, what I would love to do, but I get to help people to do that themselves. So.
1: Um, and Daryl, do you think in terms of having had that experience in the US, do you think special collections or kind of heritage have a different role in the US than they would have in the UK or is it quite similar the sector?
0: Um, I think uh, they're very different. <laughs> um I, I mean i think if you were to talk broadly I everyone mean, would like to say oh you know we have very similar very similar needs and experiences but to be honest with you that there's so many differences between the states and the uk both just in terms of what the collections how the collection have been formed and what they they've been formed, what reasons they've been formed for you know where a lot of historic university collections in the uk they really are this kind of gravitational spot where things have, have accrued over time through Gift and donation and bequests, and you know the collections have grown organically. Where a lot of the stellar collections in the states are really built by really pointed, defined collection uh, activity that happens largely in the mid 20th century, kind of post World War II, but also some some collection activity before that. Uh, and the, the drive there was really to to build as you know the, the best research collection you possibly can with. Um, rather deep pockets to do do these kind of things. So I think that the ways that collections have been built in the States versus the UK are very different, Mm. but also the way that the amount of importance that American higher education institutions put on their heritage collections versus the UK is quite different as well. You know, I the the, the collections that we have uh, at Edinburgh you know, we have 45, 46 members of, of core staff across all of the CRC. For the collection size that we have in the States, you know, that could easily be 150, 200 people. The, so the amount of resourcing that universities, ha- one, have, have to hand to do things like this. But two, the amount of resource they put into working with heritage collections is, is vastly different. Oh,
1: that's fascinating. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, Lily's got another good question, which is, do you have any advice on how to stand out when applying for volunteering or job roles in this industry?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, express your passion uh, in cover cover letters, especially. Uh, so I get this question a lot. I mean, the CVs need to be a certain type in a certain, certain form, but your cover letter is really where, where you're going to shine. Uh, and don't be afraid to to write a slightly longer cover letter than, you know, just three paragraphs, write a two-page cover letter. For for me, especially for volunteers and student interns, what I, I really want to see is is that, you know, have they experienced that spark moment? You know, have they been in a room with these special collections? Has it meant something to them or has it changed the way that they've thought about the particular subject or, you know, the paper that they're working on? And give specific examples too. You know, it, it really means something to to somebody that is recruiting. That if you've taken 10 minutes to look at our catalog or to go onto the online image database and say I really like you know this item and this is why or you know this thing is really interesting because X, um, that means to me that tells me one, you're interested in the collections, but two you know how to move around databases and how to look for things.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for all your questions today and thank you for being here. I think if that's all, then we'll go ahead and wrap up. It's been a great hour and everything has been so interesting. So yeah, before we go on behalf of myself and, and Laura and Voice and everyone who joined us, thank you so much for talking to us today, Daryl. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Sure, I mean, to, to be honest with you, it's been a real pleasure to see Voice grow when it has. You know, The fact that we, we, we now have this volunteer group that, that has grown out of the pandemic. To really just increase engagement on our collections, led by students, is, it's, it's fantastic. And so I'm, I'm really happy to be here and to, to, to talk with y'all, but uh, I'm really, I'm even more happy to see y'all doing the work that you're doing. It's, it's fantastic.
1: This podcast is brought to you by VOICE, volunteers and collections engagement. You've been listening to We've Got History. The guest was Daryl Green. This was an episode of Meet the Series from the CRC. The live event took place in October 2021. Thanks to Laura Beattie, Serena Frederick, Bianca Packham and the team of volunteers behind Voice. This episode was hosted by Lily Mellon. The head of Special Collections was Daryl Green. The Q&A moderator was Laura Beattie. Episode edited by Lily Mellon. Cover art by Louisa Grieve. Musical stings by Chris Murdoch. Please stay tuned over the coming months for the rest of Season 2 of We've Got History Between Us. Thank you for downloading this podcast.